Last week we, we talked about the S word, sanctification. A second work of grace where not only has God given all of himself to us, but we have given ourselves entirely to him as well where we submit and reach a point where we realise that, that we need to trust him fully and entirely. <clears throat> it happens as the... Excuse me. It happens as the Holy Spirit confronts us on things that we need to fine-tune in our lives. As when we give our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit begins a work in us that begins to show us things, sometimes they're little things, but other times they're not so little and not so, so easy to deal, deal with. But the Holy Spirit shows us these things and we come to a point where we realise that we need to trust him entirely and say, you know what, I'm tired of living my life my way. I'm tired of living with a foot in both camps and I want to make this decision to go wherever the Lord takes me and go and do whatever he tells me to do. And as the Holy Spirit works in us and with us, we come to that realisation that we really do need to fully submit to him. And many of you have taken that step where you've made a conscious choice, recognising the, the presence of, your, of the Holy Spirit in us. And last week we had a bunch of you who, who stood up and made that either as a first time or fresh commitment to, to recognise that I want to fully submit my life into your hands. So this morning I want to take that just a little step further because I'm confident that our Christian life doesn't stop when we give our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I think it only starts at that point. And when we give ourselves entirely over to the Lord Jesus Christ, he begins this work we need to be ready to listen to what he's wanting us to do. And when we submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and determine to be a disciple-making disciple, we are making a very conscious choice at that point to go against a world view, the society's world view, and making a very conscious choice to go with a Bible or a biblical world view, which is anti-world, contrary to what you are being taught in schools generally, what contrary to what we are taught as society, and you are likely, can I say this right at the front today, you are likely to come under some persecution of some kind because of the stand that you make holding on to the values of this book. You are likely to do that and should expect it. I'm not telling you it's easy, it's going to be difficult, except for the fact that the Holy Spirit is with us, we wouldn't be able to do it. Except for the fact that we're not alone and Jesus has promised that as we go into the world that he will never leave us nor forsake us, we would not be able to do it. And so it's really imperative that we understand that the Holy Spirit needs to be priority in our life. When we choose to repent of our sin, to be filled with the Holy Spirit at this point and to be ready to do whatever God leads us to do, we need to do it. And we find ourselves at that point, or we should find ourselves at that point, beginning new habits or 
stop making up excuses of why we can't do some of the things because that's kind of what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to think that we're not able or we're not capable, we're not old enough or we're not young enough or we're not smart enough or pretty enough or the right gender. He wants us to think of all of those things so that we can either be ineffective in the work that God has for us or that we will actually stop altogether. And he's constantly battling with you and I at that point. And we need to recognise that the Holy Spirit is victorious in this. That Satan is not Jesus Christ's equal and opposite adversary. He's, he's not. He is so far below where Jesus is. Jesus has a multitude of angels that can take on Satan and he's not an equal and opposite of Jesus Christ at all. Jesus is the son of God who came to earth as a human being and lived life like we live life and to experience life although he knew what that was but to show us how we could live life with him at the centre. Satan was a created angel, an archangel all the, all the more, but he was an angel, created being. Jesus Christ was never. He is one with God. He is God. John, you read John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And as you read through John 1, you'll discover that the Word was Jesus Christ. So Jesus is always victorious. He has the power and the authority and the all ability to do what he needs to do and we need to trust him to get us through those things. We need to come to the realisation that we need to stop comparing ourselves with other people because we'll always compare ourselves with someone who's less than ourselves or and think that we're really good or we'll think of ourselves or compare ourselves with someone who's much better than us and we'll think we're not good enough. And we need to recognise that we need to, to compare ourselves or we need to live in our lives comparing ourselves to Jesus Christ who we recognise we're not good enough but who has the ability to help us get there. Jesus didn't offer us two ways to live. He didn't he didn't say, you can choose how you want to live and, and you can do what you want and everything will be okay in the end. He didn't say that. He didn't say to his disciples, you have a choice in this matter. You can, you can do, if you want option one, it's lukewarm option, but you can just be a Sunday morning disciple or you can be a Sabbath day disciple and you can do what's right on Sabbath and do it the rest of your life whatever you want through the rest of the week. And option two, though, is where you have to obey all that I want you to do. He didn't say that. He didn't give us the option one, option two, where he said you, we can barter with him. Like a person shopping in, in a market somewhere. He didn't say, I'll give you a good life if, if you give me everything you have. And then you go back to him and say, well... That's a bit much to ask, Jesus. Um, in fact, 
I don't really need all the blessings you're going to give me. How about I give you half of all of what I have and, and you can just give me just a decent life and I'll live life the way I want. He didn't say that either. Jesus' teachings can only be summed up in one phrase or a couple of phrases that mean the same thing, his way or the highway. It's a bit blunt. Or the alternative one, if you want and think it's a little bit more Christian, is Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Means the same thing. And this is what Jesus actually said to us. He said, you need to recognise that I need to be the centre. I am the way, the truth and the life. And there's a whole heap of I am statements that we'll get to one day in a series coming up. But he said, I must be your number one love. In Luke 14, large crowds were travelling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Secondly, he said, we, we need to decide to lose our life. We need to decide what we're going to do. In Matthew chapter 14, or 16, sorry, 24, he says, you need to recognise that Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We need to decide to lose our life for him. He goes on in a verse that's very familiar with many of you. He says, for what profit is it to man if he gains the whole world, yet he loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus said, we, we need to decide to lose our life if we're going to follow him. Thirdly, he said, we must be willing to leave everything behind. Mark 10, Jesus looking at them, loved him and said, one thing you lack, go your way, he said to Nicodemus, sorry, to the rich young ruler, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and take up the cross and follow me. And then the verse goes on that he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Interesting point before I move on is that it does not say that he didn't do it. I challenge you that if Jesus had come to you or I in that time and said you need to sell everything that you've got, you and I would be sad too. We'd struggle with that. But it doesn't mean we won't do it and it doesn't mean that this man did not go and do it. He went away sad and if you want to get down to it, I actually believe he did do it because he, he's believed to be one of the ones who actually helped later on with Jesus' body. But never, that's a whole other story. It goes on in the scriptures and says, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to be for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, and who can, then can be saved? 
And Jesus looked at them and said, with men, it's impossible. And then Peter began to say to him, see, we have left all to follow you. And Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children and lands for my sake and the gospel and who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many and the last will be first. So Jesus says we need to be ready to lose our life as we know it. We need to be ready to, to give over those things that we hold tight to. Fourthly, he tells us that we need to be prepared to forsake all for the call. Luke 9 tells us, and it happened as he, they journeyed on the road, that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to them, foxes have holes Birds of the air have nests that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach to the, ki the kingdom of God. And another said, Lord, I will follow you. But first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plough and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus gave us four very clear, and actually a little bit more as well, but four very clear things. If we are serious about our walk with him as a disciple of Jesus Christ, who have put our hand up or who have recognised the voice of the Holy Spirit and have responded to that, to allow him to sanctify us through and through, to continually and progressively work in us and through us to bring us into a point of complete obedience. We, he's given us these statements we need to heed. We must, he must be our number one. We must decide to lose our life. We must be prepared to leave everything behind and we need to be prepared to forsake all for the call. It's a tough call if we are ready to take it. And I believe that there are many who are prepared to take it. And that's the choice that many here have made to say that we are ready to stand firm on the word of God and to follow him. And I believe this church is standing against some of the, the what we would call normal things of society. This, this past week, I, I sent out about 80 plus emails to you as our church congregation. It was, uh, it was a, a survey, completely anonymous. I have no idea who responded, um, but I do have the responses. And the reason I did that is because I read a report, some of you know the name of George Bunner, who, who does a lot of church research stuff across the world, and he put out a report with similar kinds of questions. And my thoughts were, that can't be what our church is like. Our church could not possibly think the way that this research has come back. And so I decided I'd do my own little mini research. And admittedly, we've only got a, 
out of the 80 or so that uh, I sent out, about 45 to 50 people responded. So thank you for that. That's a really good response rate. And I have no idea who did or didn't. Um, but I do know one person who said to me this morning that uh, they want to change an answer. But that's okay. I don't know which one to change. That's okay. So, but this is what the research tells us. And I'll put it in a form of a graph and it won't make a lot of sense. We're reading from your left to, my, to, to your right. And it's a little bit faint, a little bit difficult to read. But on the far left on your screen, it talked about Barnard says only 2% of people in the church have a Christian worldview where he says, in other words, 98% of people in, in the US, this was, don't believe the Bible is true concerning six core doctrines, which I laid out for you in the survey. Our response 85% agree with those core, core statements entirely. So I was right. You are much better than, I, than they think you are, okay? You are good in that, but only 2% is what his research came up, 85% of our church. This is another one. Only 14, the next one along, 14% of all Christians believe that the Bible teaches absolute moral truth and is relevant for the everyday life. Our statistics in the, in the survey of respondents from this week, all of you agreed with that statement. 100% of this church recognised that the Christians, we need to believe that the Bible teaches absolute moral truth and is relevant to our everyday, everyday life. Barnard says 23% of churchgoers attend small groups during the week. We have a rate of those who responded at least of 75%. I think that's an amazing statistic, to be honest. And I congratulate you. And I want to encourage those who are not in a small group to become part of a small group. I think that's probably a little bit high because of the, of the responses that we've got back. But I want to encourage you. I think it's still around the 60, 65% anyway. So I, I just want to encourage you with that one. Barnard says 29% of Christians volunteer for one hour outside of the church service a week, volunteer. We have a rate of about 70% in our church who would do that. Barnard says 30% of churchgoers believe there is a major difference between the Quran, the Book of Mormon and the Bible. I want to tell you there is a major difference in those books and the Bible. 90% of our church believe that to be true as well. 53%, Barnard says, of all Christians do not believe homosexuality is a sin. That's a high percentage. 53% of people do not think that it's a sin. Do you, our statistic in the, in the respondents that came back in our church, no one thinks that. And I agree with you. Over 60%, Barnard says, of all Christians believe that as long as a person does good things in life, he can go to heaven. That's crazy kind of thinking. Fortunately, only 3% of our church said, I'm not sure. I want you to be sure if that 3% is in our church service today, I want you to be sure. Because Jesus said that there is only one way to the kingdom of heaven, and it's through him, through the name of Jesus. All who believe in him shall be saved. There is no other way, no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. 
78% Barna says, of all Christians do not believe the devil is a real person. They believe that Satan is just a bad force. 12% of our church say that they're not sure or, or don't believe that either. I want to make sure that you do understand this because he is very, very real. He was a created being, an angel, an archangel, who was given a specific role in heaven, who rebelled against God, who stood against God's leadership and took a third of the angels with him. If you want to read a little bit more, there's a stack of stuff in Ezekiel about how he's described with pipes and, and music and all of that sort of stuff, which will blow your mind when you think about our world, uh, looking at the world music situation. But if you want another one, go to Revelation 12. And you will discover a story that's very familiar to you that is laid out behind the scenes of what we normally talk about at Christmas. When we start to talk at Christmas about gentle Jesus, meek and mild, how Mary came on the donkey and went to the inn, you read Revelation 12 and you will discover what was really going on in the spiritual realm at that time. Where Satan took a third of the stars... And he fought against the woman with child, where they had to escape to get away from the devil. It's all there. It's in scripture. So in contrast to, to Barnard's re, re, uh, response survey, I, this is a really encouraging response from our church. So much. But Barna's results give us a little indication of where the church global perhaps is on some of these statements and why we are in the predicament as a nation and beyond, why we're in that predicament right now. Because not all of our church agrees, not all of the church agrees. And as shepherds of the, of the church, pastors who are the shepherds of the church, we are under a lot of pressure in some ways to be able to take the responsibility to maintain spiritual growth in accordance with what the Word of God says as opposed to what we are being told to believe from society. We need to be on our, on our game. We can't afford to be manipulated and, and manoeuvred into a pathway where the world will direct our paths. Replacement theology is what it's called. And we need to maintain our spiritual growth and we, as a pastors, need to maintain our spiritual integrity. And if you want to read what happens to the shepherds who do not do that, read Ezekiel 34 and you will discover very clearly what happens when the head is sick, the whole body is sick. And when the head is healthy, the body becomes healthy. You pray for me and Jasmine and Neil's in Mackay because we, I want you to be a healthy body. And we, we need each other for every part of that. That's why yesterday was just so much of a blessing I, it was, there was literally people who were dead on their feet yesterday who were helping and doing stuff that 
maybe they didn't think they were going to be doing. But the number way, number, sorry, the number one way the devil will try to destroy your destiny is to keep you in some type of sin, emotional distress or unforgiveness, addiction or fear, bitterness, or he will try to keep you living in the past where you are not capable to be able to living in the present and to look to a positive future. He will bind your mind up so that you cannot possibly do what you're supposed to be doing with confidence. So he will stop you doing things that you, you should be able to do. So when people say, you should do this, they are oh, no, I need to think about it. I need to worry about it a bit more. Don't, we don't use the word worry, but that's what we do. And I don't want to do that just yet because I'm not ready. I'm not smart enough and all of those other things. But we need to be ready to take the chance that God is leading people even sometimes into our lives that will help us to step out of where we are and across the river into his presence. John 10.10 says, The thief does not come except to steal and kill and to destroy. I have come, says Jesus, that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. We need to trust him. And by keeping you chained to your sin or, or your weaknesses, the devil can actually stop you from fighting and from keep you from helping other people. We become ineffective in what we're supposed to be doing. Our, our job, our main purpose for existence is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, is to see people come and to share our testimony to people who do not know him. That's our primary role, to bring people into the kingdom. God will do the work in their heart, but we've got to go. Matthew 28 tells us that. So no matter who you are, if you are not careful, the devil will come and try to put you into bondage of some kind. And you'll be restrained until you are able to say, I give up. I give up. I need you, Lord. And in fact, every single one of us needs the Lord. We, none of us can do it on our own. It's just like a police officer can put someone in handcuffs. The devil can keep you handcuffed and prevent you from being effective, can stop you from advancing the kingdom of God like we're called. He's, he is very real. He is a created being who rebelled against God and took one third of the angels with him, who now we know as his demons and Another statistic, if you want a statistic, is that no matter how many angels Satan took with him, God has twice as many, just on statistics alone. If he only took a third, there are two thirds that are still with him. So for every devil or demon behind a bush, there are two angels that are there to protect you. We never forget that. Don't let's focus on the negative. Let's focus on what God has done and keeps on doing. We are on the winning side. And Satan's purpose is to be God. He wants to be God. And he will do anything to get that recognition. 
He picks on the cream of God's creation, human ma uh, mankind, human beings. And he has so blinded us to the point that we are not only aware of his presence, but we don't even know we're being blindsided. We're just living our lives like this is normal. It's a deception of all deceptions. And that's why I believe Jesus was anointed. He actually said he was anointed to set prisoners free. He was anointed to give you and I life, to set us free from the bondage of sin that <laughs> Satan has brought us under. And we need to recognize that he is victorious with that. And it's the deception of all deception. It doesn't matter how big the sin might be or how long the addiction has been in someone's life. When Jesus comes in, we are totally free. He sets us free and he says you will be free indeed. You will not need to worry about it anymore. But we do. We go back and we go back and we go back and listen and live the life that we used to live. We long for what we used to have sometimes because it was easier. We think it's easy, but it's not. Jesus boldly declared in Luke 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The fact is that God loves us so much that he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to show us the truth. He was the perfect manifestation of God himself. He came as a human being, but he is God. Not just equal to, but he is God. And when you think about that, it just blows my mind how, how the whole process of the, the life on earth, the crucifixion, all of that took place when he came back and all of those things that took place. How did it happen? Except for the fact that he is God. And we spoke last week of, of his will that we be sanctified or set apart so it's clear this morning, even from last week's response, that there are many who desire this deeper life that we live with Jesus. And with that in mind, I want to help you in a couple of steps on this path to righteousness. Three, three, three things this morning. There are more, but three that I think are really important. Firstly, I think we need to see the person, not the rules. And when we set out on this life of holiness... It's easy to get caught up in keeping a bunch of rules. You know, you've got to, oh, I've got to read my Bible. I've got to, I've got to pray. I've got to go to church. Oh, I've, I've got to stop swearing and I've got to stop thinking these wrong thoughts. I've got to keep the Ten Commandments and I've got to be nice to your mother. And it's a bunch of rules. We tick them off. We think, yeah, I've done that. I've done that. Oh, but that mother thing is really, really hard. God help me. Or take my mother. <laughs> what happens 
when we see an 80 kilometre sign on the road and we're driving along. How, how I'm not looking for you to put your hand up here because I'm thinking you're failing the test. How diligent are you that you are doing 80 at the time that you cross over that line of 80? I'm guessing most of you, and I myself included, tend to slow down gradually to 85 and we might just sit just above 80 because we're really excited to get through the town or whatever we are. But we think, it'll be right. I can go two or three kilometres over the speed limit and, and the police won't pull me up. They'll be fine. I'm thinking most of you here will do that. You might even do more than that, but the very best of you will do that. What would happen if a police officer was following you? How many of you would be diligent to actually drop back to 80 or under as you went through that speed sign? Because you know that there's a police officer right behind you following you along the road. And I can remember driving, we were going down south to visit my daughter who was in Mildura at the time. And we, we went for about 80 kilometres between towns and I had a police officer on my tail the whole way. And I kept the speed, I put it on the cruise control, five kilometres under the speed limit. And if we went downhill, I'd break so I didn't go over the top. It was crazy and I was so stressed. And then he turned off and thought, He's probably thinking, we should just get going. I want to get... But he didn't pass me. What's the difference between those scenarios where we're the... And it's, it's the person... If the police officer wasn't there, we would probably see how much we could get away with. But when he's there, we don't dare try. If you see all the rules in this scripture, if you see all the rules that we have been given or you think that we have been given in the Bible, do not steal, do not commit murder, all of those things, you are missing the point. I, I didn't stop stealing because of the rules. I don't stop those thoughts or, or stop those words because of the rules. I need to stop because of the person, Jesus Christ, who is with me, right with me and is watching me and is with me, he tells me in Matthew 28. Because the person of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit is constantly with me. I will want to please him. Somebody who is holy is not a, not a holy person because he doesn't lie or cheat or steal. It's a person who is totally in love with God and wants every part of his or her life to be reflecting the perfect nature of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus meant when he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And then when we get that order right, we will understand his laws. We'll understand why he has put those things in place for us. Because when you do not follow God's laws... The real problem is not sin, but with love. We're not 
just talking about ticking boxes because those who you really love or those who really love him obey him. So here's the first step. If you find yourself struggling with sin, having a bad attitude towards serving God, check your heart because it may be a sign that you have lost your first love in this process of putting God first and saying, you know what, Lord, I'm all out for you. I'll do whatever you want. Well, will you do this? Oh, I don't want to do that. It's too hard. I'm not ready. We, we can be, fall into the trap of being religious and re, there is no room for religiosity. There's no room for that. Being religious in a negative sense means simply following a set of religious rules or guidelines and beliefs. However, being religious doesn't make you holy. Loving Jesus with all of your heart in a vibrant relationship does. Secondly, actually let me put the scripture verse up for that first. By this we know him if we keep his commandments. He, he who says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. They're pretty strong words. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Secondly, a disciple will live with a healthy fear of God. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we of time constraints for a start, but I want us to think about this though. While having a fear of God is about respecting and honouring him, and we tend to, think, tend to say that, you know, don't be scared of God and don't be fearful of God. The fear that we're talking about is just to honour and, and revere him and fall in front of him. That's true. But, but, it also means, I believe for us who are Christians, that there ought to be a healthy dose of terror and dread concerning the prospect of facing God on judgment day. Not that we should be staying in the right way because of the fear of that but we need to recognize that judgment day for some will be a terrific time not terrific as in good the word terrific actually by the way comes from the word terror so when you say this is a terrific holiday well it means what well, could mean lots of things i mean you've had a horrible woeful time or it could mean you've had a great time but it could we need to recognize that there is going to be a day of judgment that will be full of terror for some and if we find ourselves not living the way that God wants us to be, we may just come under that judgment. Look around. If you do not find a fear of God in your life, then we need to maybe reevaluate some of that. We need to live with a healthy fear of God. Because I think our society looks around and looks, well, perhaps they don't even really look at it for God, but they, they basically shove their fists in his face and say, we don't need you, God. Get out of here. That's not a healthy fear of God at all because he alone has the ability to destroy whatever he has created in an instant. You are here but by the grace of God. Your very breath is the breath that he has given you to live. We need to recognise that his love for us comes to us 
from his holiness or his love for us, which is not just a feeling or an emotion, but his intense desire for us to know him. Holiness that we're talking about with sanctification last week, but holiness gives us boundaries of God's love. It tells us how far he will go. It, God's love will not excuse sinners on judgment day. And for those who might think that, you know, if I live just a good life, if I do the right things, then God will forgive me and all will be well with you. It won't because if God did that, he is not being faithful to his character and he's not being faithful to his word. And if he is not faithful to his word, he's not God at all. He has to honour his word as God. It's, it's who he is. So when he says that this is the way that we need to live and we, we shout back at him, well, I don't want to live like that. I want to live my own life. You know, I, I think it grieves him, but in essence, it, it could be that he says, okay, well, you've got your choice. You can either live with me or you can live your own life, but the end destination is up to you to decide at that point. And you can decide whether you want to be in front of me on judgment day with fear and trembling or you can look at me in the face and I can say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. It's your choice. But the answer is here. We don't need to argue what we've got to do to get to heaven. As much as any other religion might tell you to do enough things, disciples really need to have a fear of God which reminds us of the consequences of turning away from God and going back to a world and suffering God's wrath in judgment time. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not is my presence only, but how much more in my presence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 9 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 14 is in the fear of the Lord. There is strong confidence. And it goes on. There's probably another four, five, six verses in Proverbs that will talk about what it means to have a healthy fear of the Lord. A disciple has an, a healthy fear of the Lord and it's essential if we're to live as his disciple. Hebrews 10 is, is up there on the screen. for. Um, I don't want to read it all just now, but I want you to read it all at some point. But I will read parts of it. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses as Lord dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of the, how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy he who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? We need to have this healthy fear of God. Thirdly and lastly, a disciple relies on God to develop the fruit of, of the Spirit in their lives. We talked very briefly about this last week. But if you, if you want to look up Galatians 5 to look up the, the fruit of the Spirit, we remember that as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, 
people in society are watching us. We're on display for the world. They, if, if, as soon as they realise or as soon as they know that you go to church or you are calling yourself a Christian, you are being watched. It's a little bit like Big Brother waiting for you to mess up so that they can feel justified when they do the same sorts of things. We still make mistakes. I don't want you to think that we've got to do everything perfectly without any mistakes. We are human beings and every single one of you and myself will make mistakes in our lives. We will. But it's in those mistakes and how we deal with those mistakes that should show or ought to show how others then begin to see. When we make a mistake and people are watching, they watch to see how we deal with that mistake. And we need to be careful about that. We need to live, when we make mistakes, to show that our life is to live a life like Jesus Christ with an ever-increasing evidence of the presence of the fruit of the Spirit in our life, being prepared to admit when we're wrong. Dealing with people with gentleness and respect, even when they may not deserve it. To have self-control in difficult circumstances. To show kindness when others may be unkind. To remain patient in the face of adversity when things are going wrong, to just have the patience. People are watching us respond to difficulties. To live, un to love, sorry, unconditionally. And to be able to forgive those who hurt us and wrong us. To live with the fullness of joy in our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And to live with the peace of God in our lives. Knowing that he is in control and things will turn out right because he is in control. Might not turn out the way that we expect, but they will turn out okay. And we need to trust him on that. None of those things are possible or will happen without the power of the Holy Spirit. For us who claim to be with Christ Jesus, we need to recognise, we need to fully submit our lives into his hand to allow the Holy Spirit to do that work. Otherwise, we're going to be half-hearted in the things that we do and we're going to struggle. And some may even give up. So let me finish with this one question for you. Do you really want to be set free? Do you really want to be set free? And I ask that because it's a, it was a, well, it was a question that Jesus asked a man who had an, an, an infirmity at the pool of Bethesda. In John 5, he, he says there was a man lying there and he knew he'd been in a condition for a long time. He says, do you really want to be made well? But I ask you that question here because as I talk with people, there are some who don't want to be made well. There are some who are very content living with bitterness and anger in their lives and have no intention of giving in or giving up or surrendering over. 
So that's, that's why the question, do you really want to be set free? I believe there are a bunch of you who do. And we need to be honest with ourselves when we ask that question because many do enjoy the way their life is at present and have no desire to be set free. But what they will miss out on is a life with Jesus Christ that doesn't get worse but gets so much more fulfilled as he becomes more of our life, as, as he does more in our life. So we must really be honest here. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be set free? Have you had enough of the devil's deception and lies in your life? Are you fed up with the same old issues coming over and over again? Today, you can literally be set free from that because we have the power of God in our hands or on your screens or in our heart. And you can do that. Step one is to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin. Ask him, Lord, I, I have blown it. I know that my life is not right. I haven't been completely sold out for you. I need you to forgive me. I need help. Which leads us straight into step two, repentance. We need to repent. Make a decision to turn away from the way that you were doing things before and begin to follow Jesus Christ. I need your help, Lord. Forgive me. I need to make this choice to stop doing what I was doing and to start living the way that you want me to. In our five steps, the third step, and I'm not putting it up this morning, but the fifth step, uh, sorry, the third step would, would fit in right here, which is judgment. We need to recognise that we are going to be judged on, those on that decision right there. But once we repent and we're serious about this, the third, and third step is that we need to ask him into our life to be our saviour. To set us free from the power of sin that's within us. To give us the opportunity to live life to the full like John 10, 10 tells us before, told us before. He is the only one who is able to set us free from the power of sin. But don't stop there because that's where I think many of us stop. We think, oh, that's good, I'm free. Jesus is now my saviour but he can't stay just at that point. Step four is vitally important. If we are serious about this walking with him, in all seriousness, step four is probably the most difficult but the most rewarding. And it's this, that we need to make the decision to give him all of our life. We need to make him Lord. We need to make him the con or give him control. Remember, it's his way or the highway. Either Jesus is Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And so giving our heart and, or, or allowing him to save us and set us free is step three. I'm a poet and didn't even know it. And, and fourth one is making the decision to give him all of our life and to allow him to be Lord of everything that we do. So all of those conversations, all of those work colleague discussions and disagreements and frustrations and difficult mothers, we'll go back to them, he wants to help us. He wants to set us free. And it's going to take 
let me put it this way. God has done everything necessary for you to be set free. But it's going to take your decision to actually put it into the process of working. And that means a conscious choice from you and me. It's our choice. God is a God of love. He doesn't want to see any perish. He's not wanting to see people perish. But he's also just and he's loving and he will do what he says. And if you make the conscious choice to not want Jesus in your life, he will not impose himself on you to do that. But be really careful because at judgment time, you will pay the consequences of that decision. I don't want to scare you into that, but I do want you to be aware of it. So I want us to just bow our heads as I pray this morning. But I believe that there are some here who need specific prayer this morning. We might not have time to get through all of that right at this moment in time, but while I'd ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes, each one of you, and while our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you would like that specific prayer this morning, I would like just to put your hand up. I'll acknowledge you and you can pull it back down again. But I want you to do that. I see that. Thank you. And I see that and that and that. Goodness me. Yes, I see you all. Yes, I see you. You can pull your hands down. Many are called. Few are chosen, the scriptures tell us. For those who have put their hands up, maybe you still need to put your hand up, but I want to to challenge you this morning to make the conscious choice in your heart to ask Jesus right now. I can pray for you and will, but you pray for yourselves right now as we pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you Help me and show me the things that you want me to deal with right now. Forgive me, Lord, because I know that I have lived my life in or areas of my life that are not being good for you. And I ask for your forgiveness. Help me in my heart of repentance to begin to turn around to follow you and your direction. To seek you and to honour you every single day of my life. Father, I invite you into my life. Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, come into my life today afresh. Set me free from the power and the bondage of sin that so easily entraps me And allow your Holy Spirit to guide me and direct me. And as I do that, Father, I pray that you would not just settle for that, but you would help me to live my life and give you complete lordship over everything in my life at this point in time. Father, into your hands I commit my life right now. May your name be honoured. And may you get the glory in all things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.